Salutations and shit, folks. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of Travel and Shit, where I, your host, D. Carrie, have an experiential conversation about the nuanced ways that travel intersects with regular life. This week, that intersection is, I would say, around equity. I can't necessarily say fairness. Fairness and equity do not have to go hand in hand. Um, Life ain't fair, right? And part of life is tourism. So hear me out. Wherever we go, for the most part, people live there. Except for, of course, the regions of the world where you go for a particular site, experience, or other um, entity, if you will, that is uninhabited. Uh, I almost said Machu Picchu, but I don't know if people live. Um, Okay, so imagine going to Stonehenge. I'm sure there are people that live close enough to there, but if you're going to see Stonehenge, you're going to see Stonehenge. Um, Grand Canyon, people don't live in the Grand Canyon, to my understanding. I'm sure there may be some variation of some peoples that do, but there are not large governed communities, towns, um, I don't, I almost said establishments, um, municipalities, if you will. So there are places where you can visit that are national parks, a little bit more removed. However, even those places exist within spaces that people live in, right? So what is that fine line between regular life and tourism in terms of what is fair and um, possibly what even is equitable? So came across this interesting article in um, C- on CNN.com. So the links and all of the reference material will be on the website, travelandshippodcast.com. This is episode 234. I actually wrote down the episode this time because last solo episode, I kept saying it was what, 200, episode 232 or two. I said the wrong damn episode when I kept telling y'all what episode to look for. So I wrote it down this time. This week, you're going to look for episode 234 so that you can see the reference links and you can read the um, article that I'll be referencing for this episode. So really dope article in CNN, well, on CNN.com. And it is about tourism restrictions in Northern Italy. Now, I feel like I've come across different areas putting or placing restrictions on tourism before, but um, here we are. We're going to talk about it today. Let me click on this so I can pronounce it. I'm already fucking up. Pronounce it appropriately. I want to say, let me see if I get it right. Trentino Alto Adige. Let's listen to the man. Close enough. Trentino Alto Adige. So, Northern Italy. On the border of, what did it say? I want to say Switzerland and Austria. And according to Wikipedia, Trentino Alto Adige is a region in Northern Italy Bordering, oh, I was right. The answer's right there. Bordering Switzerland and Austria. It's known for medieval castles such as um, Schloss, Tyrol, 
Um, not going to pronounce the rest of those. So it's known for med- medieval castles. The region encompasses part of the Dolomites, which never going to hold you. I thought that that was just Dolomite played so well by Eddie Murphy. What was it? The title is Dolomite is my name or y'all know the Dolomite movie. That shit is wild funny. So good. So well done. Absolutely love it. I've seen it multiple times. If you haven't already, 10 out of 10, highly recommend watch Dolomite with Eddie Murphy. Um, and an ensemble cast. Wesley Snipes is in it. Um, a lot of people. Good movie. Watch it. But it's all that to say, I only knew of the character Dolomite. I did not know that there was actually a um, a mountain range. So um, thanks to this episode for learning me something. But the region encompasses part of the Dolomites, a section of the Italian Alps known for sawtooth limestone peaks. Trento, the region's capital, has Renaissance palaces with, um, I don't know why, I I really need to get my eyes checked, y'all, because I can see this, but I can't see it well. Renaissance palaces with frescoed facades and some other shit I can't pronounce. So that's the gist of the area, right? Um, Medieval castles, idyllic, mountains, pretty shit, right? So in that area, they are going to be limiting. I be, Actually, no, it was enacted in September, 2022. They are limiting overnight visitors, capping the numbers to 2019 levels and imposing a ban on any new accommodation openings unless another has closed. So if Hotel A has um, a really great run and the family says it's been a family owned business. We decide we don't want to do this anymore. And they initially had 237 rooms that they were renting out. Well, those 237 rooms can now be divided amongst the remaining um, hoteliers or Airbnbers or how local areas decide to, you know, divvy that up. But there is now a cap according to this article, on the number of overnight visitors. So um, what other points were in the article? The number of beds set just under 230,000. The new figures will be due by June 30th, and that will include sofa beds, and then that will actually mark the final limit. So as of now... 230,000 is it for, uh, now, and see the thing about the article is they left me with a few questions, right? Is that like on, cause they're basically not going to surpass the levels of tourism that they saw in 2019. Um, I don't, oh, there's also an additional 8,000 or so to be assigned in special instances, um, based on, again, local decision-making for uh, particular uh, special instances and all those other little things. They, you know, loopholes, they got those in there. Um, I mentioned here, don't know if it's a rolling tally. Like, what if they reach that number? So if it's 230,000 beds, if they, for example, say, okay, we're only going to have 250,000 people a year. What if they make 250,000 people by August? Does that mean that all throughout the remaining fall and winter season, like they 
won't have any more tourists. That seems like that won't be the case. I'm assuming then it would mean that whatever that cap is, that is the number of, okay, well, I did say overnight guests. So I'm assuming that that cap means that that number 230 is per like for the night. Now, the gist of all of this is because it has, and according to this guy, Arnold Schuler, I'm hoping I'm saying the man's name right, um, or their name right, don't know how they identify, but they said, we reached the limit of our resources. We had problems with traffic and residents have difficulty finding places to live. Well, they reference him as he. Um, he said, adding that they want to guarantee the quality of life for locals and tourists, which has been growing harder over the de- the past decade. Reasonable. I fucking get it. I live in New York. I work in Manhattan and it is an utter shit show. Um, it's not all tourism's fault, but I also work in a very tourism friendly area in Manhattan. I, um, I'm in lower Manhattan. So that's like Soho, Tribeca, Chinatown, um, little Italy, tourists everywhere, everywhere, just crawling with them. They're all over the place. Um, that being said, there's also going to be a reservation system for popular destinations, which ensures local are happy. Tourists have access um, to the actual areas. They can park. They can actually see what it is that they are intending to see while they're traveling, and they'll be able to find something to eat. So I understand as a resident of someplace that is very tourism heavy, what it is like to be at a disadvantage because people that don't even live here are fucking with y'all resources, right? However, now my questions, and let me start this with saying, I don't have answers for you. This is one of those, um, Let's ask the questions and have a discourse. What do people think? I would love to hear what you guys think. So this region is putting a cap on the number of overnight residents that are allowed to be in this space. And they are also including reservations for popular areas. Like there's this beautiful lake that's out there. In my mind, it in the pictures, I would compare it to say uh, Lake Louise or Pedo Lake, um, Emerald Lake in Alberta, Canada. I went, want to say 2018, give or take. Shout out to Chris. Um, beautiful time. Lovely. Absolutely picturesque. Some of the most beautiful and incredible scenery I have ever seen. And that's been across the 25 different countries and what, like, I think it was 15 cities, seven states or something that I've been to in the past 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, or midway through 23. Like that's been seven years at this point. Um, Of course, outside of the two years for the pandemic, been quite a few places. Alberta has some of the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scenery. And a lot of that includes their lakes. Uh, that being said, what types of areas 
deserve to be protected from over-tourism, right? Is over-tourism even the same everywhere? Like, do natural areas deserve to be protected from over-tourism over city areas? I wouldn't say... um, When I think of rural, I think of farmland and not necessarily just desolate. So I don't know if like a meadow or a field or, um, you know, a mountain range or wherever, I don't necessarily know how to categorize appropriately the type of place or the type of region they're referencing. Um, I am personally thinking of when you are visiting, I'm American, so I would say a different country. If I, another place that comes to mind, I went to Spain, I stayed down in the Barcelona area, went up to Northern Spain, from Northern Spain, um, and this was part of a three country day trip. We did Northern Spain, we did Andorra, and then we did France. Along that route, we drove through the Pyrenees and we did like a nice little stop off in a very greenish kind of pasture, but it was surrounded by mountains all over the place. It was gorgeous. Looked like a little, I don't want to say like a cabin, but um, cottage. Yeah, cottage. Cabins are wood cottage, I would assume is stone and other materials. I don't fucking know. I'm a city girl. Um, All that being said, do those types of areas deserve to be protected? Do civilians and citizens of cities and towns and spaces under a certain number deserve to be protected? Or is it a certain amount like of capital that's generated in an area? Do places that don't necessarily bring in too much of a country's uh what's um is it per capita tourism money like if yeah the gross gdp i think if elementary school is serving me at all um if tourism is a very large part of a country's gdp does that dictate whether or not they are going to preserve and protect spaces for its locals versus entertaining and engaging with and saving spaces for tourists, right? Because Manhattan, New York City, I might be biased, but I'm pretty sure I can fairly say we're like an economic capital or at least an economic uh, economic hub of the world, period. We are very big on tourism, but New York is going to make money without tourism, right? So I won't say that we don't need tourism, but I do not think that tourism is what is necessarily... Now, it may be keeping the people of the city afloat. That is a difference. The people of the city... I can fairly say, well, then it trickles down. Like if you've got enough people that work in tourism, that if tourism completely collapsed, like it did in the pandemic, um, would it make sense or would it even be 
approachable to take it off the table. So is that the deciding factor? Like I said, I don't have the fucking answers. That ain't what my degree was in. We're just here to talk. Um, what was another question that I had down? Why do people get their standard of life protected and others don't? Living in New York City is a fucking hellscape. The traffic is insane. It is disgusting. It's nasty. Um, I can't necessarily say that a lot of the traffic is tourists, though. Like, it don't even feel like it's tourists. I feel like there are just too many people that live here and we're all struggling for the same resources. Our streets are shit. Parking is shit. It's expensive to park on the streets that don't have fucking parking. And it makes sense to the people that live here because there's nowhere to fucking park. But when we do find someplace to park, it's very expensive. Whether that expense be because your shit gets hit because there's a lot of people trying to funnel through a very narrow block. Or if it means that you got to pay for your shit to be in a lot. Or if it means that you have to take a route that includes a toll just so that you don't spend another 45 minutes on the road getting to and from your destination because the free route is going to take even longer because even more people are taking the free route. So many little expenses that are tacked on to just driving in New York. Um, For those of you who may not be um, familiar New York City is comprised of five boroughs. There's Manhattan, there's Queens, there's Brooklyn, Bronx, Staten Island. Staten Island, New Yorkers, we really don't like to claim them. Fuck Staten Island. Personally, I'd rather claim Long Island. And that's just a struggle because Long Island, Staten Island is just kind of like, we can do without. However, Staten Island is one of the five boroughs. Manhattan is where people go mostly to visit when they say that they're going to New York. A lot of people funnel into Manhattan. And then you've got Brooklyn, which is another really popular um, spot that people will visit when they come visit New York because Brooklyn, y'all, everybody in the world, well, I can't speak for everybody, but I'd say more people have heard of Brooklyn than people have heard of Staten Island, than people have heard of Queens, than the Bronx, right? So I'd say Manhattan, Brooklyn, I'd say it's a toss up between Queens and Bronx in terms of like and global acclaim. Like if someone from Kyrgyzstan um, has heard of one of the boroughs, they're going to know of Manhattan because most people think when they think of New York, you immediately just think of Manhattan. But New York City comp- is comprised of more than just Manhattan. Just a little tidbit I wanted to throw out to you. Um, but a lot of space. The one place that people think of is Manhattan, but there are other distinct boroughs and areas. I want to say it might kind of be like those of y'all who kind of have like counties and cities, if that makes sense. A nice little comparison. Like um, Miami is in Dade County. Brooklyn is in New York City. Yeah. Peach Street is in Atlanta. Atlanta is in the greater state of Georgia. So it's like New York is a state, but then you've got New York City. But then in New York City, you've got Manhattan, Brooklyn. Hoping that made a little sense to you guys that may not be familiar. That being the case, there are plenty of us here that live in the boroughs. There are plenty of us here that live in a very touristy area of New York. Why do our feelings or why do... Um, why does our standard of living not matter? Is the difference in our elected officials, right? Is it that the way 
socially or uh, culturally civilians and citizens residents are valued is different based on locations i know of course there are going to be certain dish uh differences right everybody's different it's a difference between west coast and east coast there's a difference between between up north further down south just in the united states let alone you know canada to mexico we're all on the same fucking continent right all north america that being the case what are the differences? Why do some places get protected? Why do some people seem to get uh, preferential treatment? And I think a fair assessment might be if you were to compare two countries that had similar numbers in terms of what they profit or generate from tourism, and then look at the differences and protections like what protections are in place for residents and then what protections are in place for visitors right so you can come to new york but there are places like um and this applies to anywhere i don't mean just new york honestly one of the examples that they gave in terms of um the reservation system for popular areas because i don't know about you but I love when I go someplace that I've been looking forward to going and there's no one there. I love when I go to see someplace. That's another reason why sometimes I prefer to do like a self-guided tour versus a group tour or an organized tour. Perfect example, uh, Grand Canyon. I had booked a small group tour that got canceled. I had a friend come with me and he was like, yo, rent a car and I'll drive you. We ended up having the best time because I didn't have to be uh, relegated to what the tour group was going, uh, what they were doing. I could stay if I liked a place. If I liked a view from someplace else, I could wander over there and go look at it. I could be there as long as I wanted taking pictures. I could do what I wanted. And what was beautiful about it was I was able to navigate and move where there weren't people in the way. I was able to leave as early as I wanted so that I could avoid all the crowds And I could stay as late as I wanted and avoid the crowds. I had the flexibility and the option to come and go as I please. And that worked to my benefit in the sense that I didn't have to share that resource of the view with other people. Um, And a lot of, you know, tours will specifically note, like, we're leaving this early to avoid the crowds, blah, 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 blah. Highly recommend if that is something that you are looking to do while you're traveling to consider when you're booking with ter- uh, certain tour guides and tour companies, how early or how late they're leaving in um, relation to the area that you're going to be. You might want to read the reviews specifically to see how crowded or not the area um, was recently. And by recent, I mean in comparison to when you'll be there. Like it doesn't make sense to read a review from December if you're going to be visiting an area in August. We're following, yeah? So that being the case, what what is the deciding factor between the good and the bad to say reservation times? Um, I got to say, I enjoy when there's not a lot of people there. So am I totally against like reservation times? I would kind of say no, because like when you go to a museum, they had this example in the article. You go to a museum, there's a finite number of tickets. Once they sell out the tickets for the day, that's it. They don't have any more available. You got to come another day. And I feel like 
how much of the world is communal. Like this really has me feeling like, and I, again, in fairness, this could just be a very um, selfish viewpoint to feel as if, well, the world belongs to all of us. I should be able to see anywhere in the world that I want to see when I want to see it. Part of that feels selfish because at what point does personal space become a factor? I wouldn't expect that's just because somebody wants to see authentic queens that they're able to stand on my fucking yard and take pictures or bring a tour bus down here and park up and have picnics on my lawn or even on my neighbor's lawn. Like, I don't want to see y'all on the block, period. That being the case, why would I expect that that same courtesy not be extended to people that live in other places? So then it's kind of one of those things where, well, what does, again, what deserves to be protected? Is it very populated spaces? And then what is very populated? I live in a huge city. So to me, my idea of very populated is different than someone that might live in Colorado, someone that might live in Detroit, someone that might live in Cleveland, in Youngstown, in Augusta, like different areas have different ideas on very crowded, but they're going to also know what's best for the limited resources that are available to them. And in fairness, I can't tell somebody from Dallas, what is stressful to the residents there? I'm not, I don't fucking know. I'm not from there. I don't live there. I don't have to deal with the normalcy of what is Dallas. For me, my normal is Manhattan and Queens. So I can kind of feel as if, damn, I get it. I hate the way I feel when I have to navigate around a tour group that's standing in the middle of the fucking sidewalk. Don't do that, y'all. If you're going someplace, if you are part of a group, please minimize yourself. Move out of the way, whether it be for other tourists, whether it be for other people that live in the area. It's such an annoying thing, and it's absolutely a safety factor when there are 60 people and 60 kids from schools or 60 people from grown-ups, teenagers, young adults, wherever. Don't stand in the middle of the sidewalk because now people are trying to navigate around you and they're walking into the street or you are, um, you're fucking up the flow of traffic. You're fucking up the flow of traffic and foot traffic is traffic. So move. But that being the case, overpopulated is different for everybody. But those resources, whether a limit on your resource or a strain on your resource is an extra 10 people makes it a strain versus an extra 10,000 people makes it a strain or an extra 10 million people makes it a strain. Everyone's idea of that is different. And in fairness, no one can really say what that is unless you are from there. So I feel like in terms of limitations on tourism, or and then also there's the limitations that are putting um or preserving natural or naturally existing existing or historical 
different landmarks and stuff. I remember there was a lot of talk on them closing down the trails um, in Machu Picchu because of the over-tourism and weathering down the trails and really just uh, depreciate, I don't want to say depreciating the value of it, but again, over-tourism, too many people visit a site and just foot traffic alone just changes the terrain of an area. So I understand wanting to preserve the natural spaces for generations to come, right? So the only way to do that is to limit or to restrict the type of movement, maybe the capacities or the um, the frequency or the timing with which people visit these places. And I would say before we move on from this topic in particular to consider for me, at least what has given me a little bit of peace in the idea of not being able to go someplace. It's not necessarily a no, but more of a not right now. If I were to visit this region of Italy, I unfortunately don't necessarily have the flexibility of planning something out. And I've said this a million times, like a year in advance or two years in advance right now. That's not my current existence. I am, you know, my work schedule dictates that I, we, we block our vacations in trimesters for the year. So if I wanted to visit this region and this shit were booked out for a year, or even if it were just booked out for seven months, that would likely fuck me up because unfortunately, even though I know that my vacation is blocked into trimesters, I can only book or I can only request time off for the next, for the immediate trimester. Like I can't request vacation for next April, but I am like, you know, at the end of trimester one, I'm requesting for trimester two. Trimester three is a crap shot. It's a crap shoot. We'll see what happens after trimester two. So for those of us that have restrictions on our travel, I feel like this is more of a stressful, it's more of a, well, I can't, why can't I go? Well, that's not fair to me. Some things just aren't fair. And that's where fairness and equity don't necessarily have to coincide. The two aren't mutually exclusive. Like you don't need one to have the other. So it's one of those things where you got to play your role. You got to play your part. And that's what I have been telling myself to kind of placate my own um, feelings of lack or feelings of what would be a good word of like when someone is taking something away from you there. I don't want to say restricted again. My feelings of unfairness or um, let's just stick with unfairness. It would suck for me if that were something that I was looking to do and I couldn't do it because of a limitation on my own personal um, availability. But I feel like overall, if it means that this region gets preserved for other people to see down the line in the future, then I'm with it. But I'm a little less inclined to be supportive of systems that only consider, and this is going to sound real trash, but I'm a little less inclined to 
be excited about restrictions that only consider residents only because to me, that makes way and leaves space for discrimination in the most negative way of the word. Like, you would think that there's only one form of discrimination. Well, actually, there might be only one. That depends on what the actual legit definition of it is. But my point is, I wouldn't want for a very wealthy nation to be able to say, we don't want the poorest. Because that happens also, right? You just get outpriced out of certain areas. Like, what the fuck I'm going to do in Monaco? I don't got Monaco money. It is what it is, right? There are certain even island countries. I would love to go see um, Turks and Caicos. But right now, I don't have Turks and Caicos money. It might have a really affordable flight to get out there. But if the room rates are all 300 and better a night, I don't got it. I might pull off two two nights, but why would I fly that far for two nights? You feel me? So that is my only concern about restrictions based on locals and residents being comfortable. Um, there, another note that they had mentioned in that article was that housing became very difficult for residents to find. I live in New York. So the idea of housing being difficult, I'm not very, um, I don't feel sorry for them. I'm empathetic because I know what that feels like to be looking for housing. I know what it feels like to feel like your options are fucking not options because you're outpriced or there just is nothing for you to, there's nowhere for you to go because they're all Airbnbs. But then it to me kind of says, well, what is the environment or what is the, um, what's the vibe that people are, leaning to Airbnbs? What is the vibe that people are feeling the need to be um, or to find more ways to make money? Like what types of Airbnbs are there? Are these people that are actually Airbnb out their personal residences? Is this people that say, hey, I'm getting married. I'm moving in with my fiance. Why give up my apartment? I can Airbnb it to other people. I love my city. I'm available on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I could even do a little tour and be there and available to have people that might be coming in on a Tuesday or leaving on a Thursday. Little things like that, right? So they're the Airbnb Airbnbers who are true to the the original um um I don't want to say dream, but like the originating sentiment of Airbnb when it was like a couch surfing. Like you live here, you're just opening up your home and your space to people that are passing through and traveling. But then you've got the people that are just buying properties all over the place and just making it a business. They don't give a fuck about the property. They don't give a fuck about the people. They don't give a fuck about the neighborhoods that they're in. They just are making their money and taking it out of the communities that these homes are in and that these Airbnbs are in. So I can absolutely see an issue with that. And I absolutely see a problem with that. However, to my point earlier, the idea of a certain select few people being able to dictate the terms of engagement for the rest of the world doesn't really sit well with me. And there's no real, I don't want to get big picture here and point out how that happens in so many different places. And it does in this scope of the conversation, in the realm of what we're discussing now, I 
again, back to the cultural differences and the regional local differences. I don't know if it's elected officials that make those differences for the people there that are having for the, and by people, I mean like the residents that are having their lives and um, livelihoods protected by limits on tourism. I don't know if they're voting differently. I don't know if that's how things are done there. Um, I don't know if it was like a town hall vote that was part of these uh, tourism restrictions. Like, I don't know how it was done, but I know that um, things don't happen the same place, the same way everywhere. And I, that control in the, the idea of control in the wrong hands in terms of tourism, just being able to say, you know what, we're not liking how vast or how different the tourists are that are coming to our region. Right. So it's like, who's in like, what limitations are surrounding those existing limitations? Right. Is there someone that is, is it just a number count? Is it a count from different areas? Is this only applicable to people from certain countries? Is this only applicable to people that make a certain amount of money? Because I've seen an article about that prior. I don't know if we talked about it on the show, but I've seen where, you know, you have to make a certain amount of money in order to visit certain areas. I don't remember where that was. If you're so inclined to be interested, shoot me an email, dcarry, D-C-A-R-R-I-E at travelandshitpodcast.com and I'll see if I can find it if you are so interested in finding it out. However, if y'all ain't asking, I'm not going to look it up. <laughs> but I say all that to say, to what was the Spider-Man quote? To whom much is given, much is expected. There are some beautiful, beautiful, beautiful places in the world and I would hate if it came to a point where only certain people from certain places that made certain amounts had access to that. Travel already is a privilege. Not everybody can afford to travel. Everybody can travel to an extent with what they have. Depends on how you do it. You may not have money for a flight. You may not have money for a train or a car, but your travel doesn't have to be that kind of travel. Your travel can be, where the fuck can I walk to? I'm going to take a nice ass walk. But when I'm planning these walks, I'm going to make sure that I can find some type of accommodation along that route. Look at the guest that I had, Christine Job, that ended up doing the, um, the Camino walk, where she walked from, I want to say it was essentially Northern Spain, possibly to Southern Spain. I do not recall the extent of the walk, but it was a walking trail. Now, granted, she did have to go to another country to do that. But if you lived in Spain and you couldn't afford a flight, there's a path you can walk. There's tons of hiking. There are tons of places and areas that you can go that you don't necessarily have to drive to. You can take a Chinatown bus is a dollar. You can go to a couple different states. Not always. a Damn, I wonder if the dollar bus is still a thing. Inflation done inflated. I haven't. I haven't been on one of the um, Chinatown buses in a long time, a long time, but Greyhound, you would go to like, depending on when you got your ticket 
and when your bus was going, you could get from like, I want to say New York City to, and I say Chinatown because the bus is literally in Chinatown. Um, but I want to say you could get to like North Carolina for like $32, $60 or something like that round trip. Like you can get decent priced tickets to see a lot of the, and I'd say most of the places where along the Northern, um, the Northern, I want to say the Northern hemisphere, uh, the Northern coast uh, countries along the East coast, I'm saying Northern and realizing that's not what I mean, the East coast. And they originate in like New York. We could take a bus to Philly. We could take a bus to DC. We could take a bus to Virginia. You could take a bus to I want to say Delaware, you could take a, but there are a lot of different buses you could take from up here. And I say all that to say there is a mode of transportation that can work for you. There is travel that you can make available to you. Um, and my fear is that many of the world's beautiful, naturally occurring resources may be more difficult to access with more restrictions in place. Like travel is already so very, um, I don't want to say limited. It's a, I don't want to say a first world thing either. This, this, that's a, the wording on this one, I'm trying to, to dance around a little carefully because I, I enjoy saying what I actually mean, right? I want you to understand what I'm trying to say. The sentiment in my brain is, yes, travel is not something that everyone can do. However, I think a lot of the people that think that they can't do travel think that they can't do travel for the wrong reasons. You don't have to do expensive travel. And I don't mean travel to be all inclusive. Um, I don't want people to think that travel is the $1,000 flight to the $1,000 a week stay. Like you don't need $2,000 to travel. You can absolutely travel for $500. You could absolutely travel for $200. You could travel for $100. It just depends on where you're going, how long you're staying, and what you plan on doing while you're there. It can all be done. You just have to want to be someplace that you can afford might not be able to go everywhere but you can go someplace and that is my point and I say all that to say that travel is limited in a lot of ways for a lot of people and I would hate to see it be even more limited by people twisting and manipulating travel restrictions to restrict certain people instead of protecting resources that I feel like really expresses my, the point that I was trying to make. So that's it right there. So, um, I'm curious to see what you guys think on it. If you've run into any travel restrictions in your travels, if you've ever gone someplace that was sold out, if you've ever tried to book something and it was, um, booked to capacity and you had to consider going at a later date or at a later time or to a, another destination in total. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. So same email, shoot, shoot me one at dcarry at travelandshippodcast.com because I'm curious as to what travel restrictions you guys have encountered in your travels. Um, and finally, 
this is the second time we're going to be doing um, a, I guess you could say, listener question or an audience question on my um, Instagram underscore dcarry or travel and shit, T-R-A-V-E-L, the letter N-S-H underscore T. Those are the two accounts. You can either follow me, dcarry personally, or you can follow the podcast, Travel and Shit. Either or, I'm there. Um, but we had Miss Jada Dior ask a question and I will be giving her uh, some free travel and shit merch. So if your question is answered on the show, you get some merch. Uh, thank you again to Tess, uh, Tessa Curls from last solo episode's question. This week, Jada Dior, is what budget should you set aside for traveling? And I like this question because similar to what I was saying before, how you can go so many places based on what it is you have to spend. And so I would say in terms of budgeting for travel, somewhat reverse engineer, you have to really consider what is important to you. You have to prioritize the different aspects of travel based on what is the most important to you. So um, there's the destination, right? Where are you going? If that is the most important thing to you, you know that whatever amount of money you have to spend, that is where the primary, that's where the most of your coins are going to go. If the location is the most important place, like the destination, if you want to go to South Africa, that's how you budget. You figure out what things need to align with getting you into South, um, into South Africa. Right. So maybe it'll make more sense when I give you the whole spiel, this destination, there's the actual, like the country, the city, the town, the community, whatever. That is one part. Then you've got the location slash accommodations, right? So you could say you want to be in New York, but then where in New York, right? Do you, feel that Manhattan is the place you want to be because those are the areas and the landmarks and the sights and the seas and the sounds and the smells that you want to experience? Or are you willing to, are you willing to stay in Queens? Are you willing to stay in Brooklyn, in the Bronx? You just want to go to New York and you know, you can get to Manhattan from the Bronx. So, okay, I'm in New York the actual location or my accommodations don't matter as much as me actually getting there. So if New York is very important to you, but the actual like Manhattan part, if the city part isn't the most important to you, you can get to New York, but you don't have to stay in the most expensive place, right? So there's the destination, then there's the location slash accommodations. You can say that, you know, I want to be able to walk everywhere. So you're going to end up having to spend up for accommodations that are in the area that you want to do the most of your activities in. And that's another thing, activities. If the activities, if something in particular is what is catching your eye about a destination, then you got to consider that as well. That is something that you got to keep in mind that you got to spend for the activities. If you know that you are going someplace because you want to do a particular, say, um, a cooking class or a particular museum, or, um, like I went to Peru, Peru and did swimming with the, um, almost at the dolphins swimming with the sea lions. If the, 
experience or the thing that you do is the most important to you. Note that. Other things on there are food um, and then uh, mode of transportation, right? So we are probably going to do Montreal again in the next couple of months or a couple of weeks. And we already know we're going back to Leverunga. So for us, that's our linchpin. We're going to start there and we can reverse engineer from there. There's a park that we spent a lot of time out while we were there the last time. So we know, all right, so we're going to be at the, say, north end of that park because it's closer to Leverunga. It gets us to the park. We don't have to walk up all them fucking hills. The last area was cool. I think we stayed in Gaberhood. Loved it. However, we know that this trip, that food and that park is what is going to be most important to us. So for this trip in particular, our budget is going to be more focused on the food and the location. We already know the destination. The mode of transportation is we're going to drive. Could we fly to Montreal? Yeah, but why? We're six hours away. He don't mind driving six hours. I don't mind sitting in the car while he drives for six hours. So we driving. So destination, as in the country or the city or the state, the area in general, right? So destination, location slash accommodations. Do you want to be in the city or do you mind staying outside of the city? Do you want to stay in a hotel? Do you have to stay at a hotel that is beachfront? Do you have to stay at a um, Airbnb that has a backyard or a terrace? Like the location and the accommodations, like that's another thing that's going to determine where your money's at. If you know you are a resort girl, then you got to have resort money. So you may decide that you want to go someplace that has the resort of your dreams because you know that you do not want to do things that are local. You do not want to experience local cuisine or whatever the local cuisine on that resort is. If that's cool with you, then your budget should focus on the resort. Find the place. And if the location don't really matter because you know you're not going to be leaving the resort, then just find the resort that you enjoy. Find the resort that has all the shit that you want to do. And once you find that, then you can say, all right, if I know that I only have $500 to travel, $400 is going to be on the fucking stay. That is going to be on the resort because that is what's most important to me. Now you got the other $100 to figure out, all right, well, what I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat with this. I'm going to make sure that I stay at a resort that has all-inclusive, right? That's going to cost me an extra $25 a night. All right, boom, now I'm down to $25. Everything is covered. Your trip is good. The resort is what mattered the most to you, so that's where all the money is going to go. Uh, destination, location slash accommodations, food, experiences, mode of transportation. It is easier to save money when you know that you are spending Spending it on things that you want. I don't know if that's everybody's ministry. That works for me. I know that it's easier for me not to spend money when I know what the money is going to be spent on instead. So I've had my eye on a pair of um, Jordan 1s for a while. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, stretch of the imagination, a sneakerhead, but I do enjoy sneakers. Um, I'm not a heel girl. So a nice pair of kicks. I really get, um, I get up for, um, but I also know that I'm not a $400 pair of sneakers kind of girl. We're not doing that. Uh, but 
I know what I have a number in my head that I'm kind of comfortable with spending. And by comfortable, I mean, do I want to spend that? No, but I know that this is something that I really want. I know that I work, I have a job. So that's what my money is for, for staying alive and for things that I enjoy. Fuck everything else. So I know that, damn, if I spend my money on a new watch, if I spend my money on, you know, I'm not a bad girl, but if I spend my money on a bag, that money's not going to the Jordans. That money's not going to uh, the thing that I know is, I won't say important to me, but it's something that I really, really want. So I am more inclined to not spend on a bag. I'm more inclined to not spend on a watch because I know that I'd rather that money go to a pair of sneakers. And that's what I mean. Choose what is important to you. You already know what you got to spend. The idea of, I'm not by any means a financial planner. Again, not what my degree was in. Just trying to be helpful. You have a sense of what you can and can't, uh, what you can and can't spend. If you know you've got a thousand dollars as your budget, as your limit, that money, that uh, collective, that total is what you have to work with. And that total should be divvied up amongst your priorities based on what is most important to you. So that thousand dollars is going to be spent on the different things that are important to you for different reasons, or that $500, that $300, whatever it is, Shift the most of that money to the things that are most important to you. If you know that you need someplace beautiful to lay your head, that's where the most of your money goes. And then you figure out the rest with whatever money you have left. You figure out if you know you want to have the best food gram pictures. And if you know that food is very important to you, if that's one of your love languages, pick your restaurants first. And then you can say, all right, well, I know I want to eat at this place. I know it's three fucking dollar signs or five dollar signs. So that means that I'm going to save three, four hundred dollars on one really, really good meal if that is your thing. So then you say, you know what? A bitch might have to stay at a hostel because other things are important to me more than the accommodations. Or you might say, you know what? I don't really care where I go, but I need a gorgeous, gorgeous beach. So now instead of the destination being the most important, you can focus on the fucking beach. You can say, well, damn, I've brought these five options that I would love to see in person down to three based on the first two. I definitely can't afford. So what are the three that closer to your budget? which is going to be more reasonable in terms of what your other priorities are. Is one really, really, really accessible in terms of the flight that it's going to cost to get there? Or is one actually accessible to you by train? So you say, all right, well, the flight's going to cost me more, or even the train might cost you more, but it gives you um, sightseeing options. So you say, you know what? That can be my experience. So I don't have to pay for the experience when I get there. I will experience the sights. I will take the train, get to this beach that is absolutely beautiful. I've saved money on um, 
uh, experiences because I said that my sightseeing was going to be my experience. So then boom, the rest of the money that I have is now on accommodations and shit to eat. So you really just have to play around with what is important to you, figure out what you are comfortable spending, and then divvy that number up amongst the different tiers that I gave you. That is my best advice for budgeting for travel. Now that ain't saving for travel, but that's how to spend the money that you are going to spend on your travel experience. So shoot me your questions, y'all. You could DM me on the social medias, or again, you got my email, shoot me an email. I would love to include your question in another solo episode. Um, Overall, again, reminders that travel is so much more than vacation. People live in the areas that you're actually visiting. Be respectful of that. I feel as if everybody were to put a little bit effort into being kind to people, especially people that are different from them while they're traveling, maybe one day, 600 future years away, if the planet still exists, there won't be a ton of travel restrictions that have put in place because people have ruined the fucking planet, both um, mentally, spiritually, and physically by being shit people to other people. Be nice to the people that live in the areas that you're traveling because they have to deal with the ramifications of what you leave behind. Um, And we don't want the world restricted because people are assholes when they travel. That's it, guys. I'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the travel restrictions? Have you run into travel restrictions as you traveled? And um, how did you navigate those? And shoot me your questions for the next solo episode. All right. I hope y'all enjoyed this and I'll see you guys next week.